will read the scripture for us. Luke 16, 1-31. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from my management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill. Sorry. Uh, Sit down quickly and write 50. Write 80, sorry. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John, and since then the good news for the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, 
Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for what you want to share with us today, what you want to impart on our hearts, Lord, from this scripture, and we pray and ask that you would uh, bless the message that Jonathan has prepared, Lord, and I pray that it would um, sink deeply into our hearts as well, Lord, so that we may honor you and glorify you with our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you, Chris. So the master of your heart won't share. Uh, when I was a young adult pastor, and far more than in my current role, I was asked to give relationship advice advice on occasion, right? Young people dating, trying to determine their lives, who they should marry, who they shouldn't. And often a, a good tip that I think you'll agree with would um, come up and it would be something I would share with these young people that being exclusive is a good thing. Right? Generally, uh, being exclusive in relationships is a good thing. And I made the mistake of Googling that idea this week. And uh, there are many opinions, and many of them are wrong, um, out there in the ether of the internet. But there's a fair number that actually support this conclusion, both scientifically, sociologically, and biblically, as we'll make an argument this morning. Exclusivity is good, especially when we think of defining relationships. And I just want to think of that of marriage. Because in many relationships that I have as a friend, as a father, as a pastor, I can hold shared affections. I can like more than one sports team. And when you're a Nebraska fan, you need other sports teams to support so you can stay happy. Right? All the San Diego teams won yesterday. It's great. Don't ask me about the Husker score. But I can have a different levels of affection or have even shared affections for different genres of music. Everything but country. Right? But <laughs> I, can, I can love my children with shared affections and love them. I have three. And I, even though I tell them I have favorites, I, I don't. I, I love them equally. I would sacrifice for them. I would care for them. But... When it comes to the most important of human relationships I will ever hold, to survive and thrive in that relationship, it requires fidelity, a single affection over all 
others. The same is true. Do you, do you agree? Okay, we've got an amen from the front row. And the same is true of our hearts at the core of who we are, as spiritual beings, that we are meant for exclusivity. There can be only one defining love at the center of who we all are, only one master of our hearts. And it's fascinating as we look at Scripture, God has only ever invited people into exclusivity. It's never an invitation into sharing place with other gods or other deities or other patterns or traditions. When we were in Washington, D.C., we were counseling a young man who his Facebook profile said that he was a Christian Buddhist. We had to help him realize that that could not actually be something that he could be. It had to be exclusive. And here, Jesus, while he's preaching on the kingdom, right? We've seen it. He's been inviting the unexpected, calling prodigals, both the younger brother and the older brother home, reasserts this exclusivity to the relationship and the existence of the kingdom. And here, he hits back against the idol most prevalent among the Pharisees and arguably most prevalent among us even in our day, and it's that of money. And it's true, right? People get weird when you talk about money, especially in the church. Like some of you in your head just did, oh no, not a sermon about money. And I don't do it very often. The finance team sends me a message every week. Could you just preach on money? They don't actually do that. <laughs> but let's just get the reasonable but uncomfortable stuff all out of the way Right up front, how should a Christian handle money? And here's my perspective, having been a pastor for more than a decade and have studied scripture and spent lots of money. Here's some clues for you. See it as belonging to the Lord. All of your money is not yours. Everything you own, all of your possessions, all of your mammon belongs to the Lord, just as you are his. So approach it that way. And then see money as a tool, not as a goal. Like, how can I use what the Lord has given me to advance his kingdom, to secure the life he's called me to live? And then be generous with what he's given you, what he's allowed you to steward. You Be generous to others, meeting needs as you see them. And then sacrificially give. Give to kingdom work. Give to the church. And friends, you don't even have to make an argument for tithing from Scripture or prescriptions in other places of Scripture. Just give because you value it. You love the people that you're with. You love the ministry. You sense the church is called to and you give to support that. Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Jesus says. So... That's all the uncomfortable stuff. Trust it to the Lord. It's his. Give it away and give it to the kingdom that it can advance. And we get this from scripture and I think from our text today. And here in these parables, in this interaction before the disciples and the Pharisees, it's used money by Jesus to prove exclusivity and to give us some kingdom clues as to how we should approach it. In the hinge chapter of, or the hinge verse of this chapter, and they just get, I was going to have a quiz to see if anybody recognized it, but it's, it's verse 13, right? If you're reading, you should see these stories are brought together by this central thought that Jesus communicates, and he says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. 
It's not that you can serve God and romance or God and intellectualism. It, you can't. There has to be one master. But the key one that is so prevalent here is money. And we understand that. It's the truth that God desires the ultimate place in your heart to be the defining love that gives you identity, purpose, existence, and passion for all that he has called you to. He wants to be the one thing that directs your life. And the master of your heart won't share. And if that's true, then how do we ensure that we don't have the wrong master? And I think Jesus here, through the telling of two parables, helps us and he tells us to be smart, to be leery, and to be convinced. So we start with being smart. And this is the easiest point this morning to prove to you. Because who would disagree with the statement? Right? When it comes to money, you should be smart. Yeah? Everybody agree? That's, that's an e- amen, Pastor. Amen. That's the easy one of the morning, right? Maybe, however, we should start by defining smart. Phil always reminds me to define the words that I use. And so we want to endeavor to do that this morning. And he also said to his disciples, it's the start of this chapter. We just come off of the parable of the prodigal sons, right from the audience of the Pharisees who are still there, still listening from that story of a family that was actually torn apart by two sons' desire for their father's mammon, his money and his possessions, his property. Jesus then tells the parable of the dishonest manager. And we hear from the story, it, it, the point is the, the manager here is not a good one. He is bad. He, he works for a rich man. He's managing his possessions. He's running the household, whatever that is, the farm, the industry that is happening. But he's wasting it all in how he manages. He makes no defense of that in this parable either. It's not, the dishonest manager says, no, I, I'm really trying my hardest. I'm doing my best. He just he makes a strategy for life ahead. So it has to be true. He wasn't good. He was, in fact, dishonest. He's probably taking extra on the side for himself or being reckless with the way that things are maintained in this household or accounted for or run, and he is fired in this moment. But before he brings all the accounts before the rich man to show him where everything is, he devises a plan to ensure his future, to take care of himself. He realizes he's not strong enough to dig, and he's ashamed to beg. And we can kind of get a picture of this guy and his posture towards things. He's dishonest, he's weak, or at least he sees himself as weak, and he would be ashamed to beg with those who would typically beg. So he cooks the books to curry favor here. He summons all of the debtors and he cuts their debt. The debt relief is varying, but there are significant amounts that are being cut off. One is 80%, one is 20%. It's just a significant amount. And it's still costing his master's profits, but he's winning friends for himself by doing this. He's still fired, but the Lord, it says in this parable, and I think it's actually Luke saying that Jesus is the one that is commending this shrewdness. You have to know this is a hotly debated text. You can read commentaries, you can have five commentaries, and they have five perspectives on this text. But I promise you I am right. Right? 
Maybe. Be Bereans. Read it for yourself. Check it out. But here's what he says. The master commended this dishonest master or manager for his shrewdness. And then this is Jesus. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of mammon, uh, by unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwelling. One writer says that Jesus shares an implication of the story. The children of this age, those that are unbelievers, typically deal shrewdly with each other and to win friends uh, by these means. Whereas the children of light, believers, often fail to use their financial resources to win people to faith who thus become friends forever. And I couldn't help but think of Amy Grant, Michael W. Smith. Friends are friends forever when the Lord is the Lord of them. That was the first concert I went to. It's so great. But those are the type of friends. The forever friends. Some of you are millennials. I have no idea what I'm talking about. Oh, Christian pop. We got to go. But it's being used. This mammon is being used to create friends that are going to welcome you into eternal dwellings. And the writer goes on to say, Thus Jesus encouraged his followers to use their money shrewdly but innocently in order to advance God's kingdom. Like This isn't in the notes, but I wonder what our monthly budgets look like. You should have a monthly budget. Like If you don't, let's, let's work on that. We'll get some friends around you to help, right? I, I don't know if I have a budget so much as I know where it all goes and it's listed, right? But there should probably increasingly be a category that's like kingdom advance, eternal dwelling. It says make friends by yourselves, disciples. This is who he's telling his followers that they may receive you into eternal dwelling. And he goes on, he says, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. If you've not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, in mammon, money, and possessions, who will entrust you the true riches? And a few of us in here are reading a book together called Economics, And it describes five capitals. And I'm not sure the book is, is what is valuable, but the time together is probably more valuable. But it describes in this book... These five capitals are areas of investment in our lives that we live with and we need wisdom to rightly order them and prioritize them accordingly. And they are, maybe I should quiz Gil and Roger. First one is spiritual. (laughs) You guys are killing me. Spiritual, relational, physical, Intellectual and then financial. So let's do it again. Spiritual, relational, physical, intellectual, and financial. And they are supposed to go in that order. Order of importance. So it starts spiritual and it works down to financial. And the challenge for us is that we often then flip that order. And we invest the most time and energy and effort in the financial capital. We end up running after mammon. And Jesus says to be smart with whatever unrighteous wealth you have, whatever money and possessions and property that you have, using them for something more significant than themselves. And this is hard to do. I mean, maybe you all have figured it out, but it's hard for me to do. Money is often at the top of my mind, right? 
It's driving our anxiety. It can color our hope and fear for the future, like what is around the corner. And Jesus comes to free us from mammon's grip. And one way to experience that freedom is to just use it shrewdly. Not for gain as defined by worldly standards. And it's not that gain itself is the problem, but how we use that gain that becomes the problem. But to use it to make an eternal impact is what he's inviting his followers to. To use what you have for real significance. Tom Schreiner says, Jesus counsels people to invest their money for eternity instead of focusing on comfort in this life. And it's such a challenge because I, I want comfort. I want what my definition of hashtag blessed, right? He says, make friends that will receive you into eternal dwellings. Kent Hughes says, the word may include both God and redeemed humanity, welcoming a newly departed and generous believer to, I want to be. I want them to say he was a generous believer. Mm. What a picture that is. God, his angels, and grateful souls, eternal friends, those who have heard the gospel because of one's giving, greeting and leading a faithful believer into eternal tents. St. Ambrose said, The bosoms of the poor, the houses of the widows, the mouths of children are the barns which last forever. So the kingdom is all about leveraging what we have been given for the kingdom's advance, for the honor, for the glory, for the praise of Jesus alone. Martin Luther said, therefore, we must use all these things upon earth in no other way than as a guest who travels through the land and comes to a hotel where he must lodge overnight. He takes only food and lodging from the host, and he says not that the property of the host belongs to him. Just so we should also treat our temporal possessions as if they were not ours and enjoy only so much of them as we need to nourish the body and then help our neighbors with the balance. Thus, the life of the Christian is only a lodging for the night, since we have no continuing city but must journey on to heaven where the Father is. And in the New Testament, this approach, this posture is central to kingdom living. John, the disciple that is all about love and, you know, just love, love, love. If you just love each other, he even says in 1 John 3, 17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? James, who we're used to like going hard on us, he says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is it? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Like this, this, how we approach money can just be a key indicator of who our master is. Because either we will hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. And when God is the master of our hearts, he points us outward, winning friends, stewarding what he has given us for his glory, realizing that that is actually the place of our good. So when it comes to money, sons and daughters of light must be smart. Seek wisdom. 
If you need help budgeting and planning, are you going to make a right decision on property or where to live or where to invest? Like surround yourself with people in the church that can counsel you, that have a mind for the advance of the kingdom and for your good in it. And then be generous. Give away what you've been given and surrender it all to the Lord. It's the way of life we're invited to here by Jesus over and over again. And while we endeavor to be smart, smart with money, we also have to be leery of it. No. We don't use, do we use leery? Do you use that in your modern vernacular much? It just means to be cautious or wary due to realistic suspicions, right? For one, money desires to be your master. That's, that's here in our text. You can't serve two masters. There's God and money, so money clearly desires it. There are other things that we can make into idols that in the scheme of the devil attempt to chip away at the exclusivity of our hearts. But money has these extra long spindly claws that grab deep into the flesh of our hearts. So it desires to be your master, but also we should be leery because, friends, it won't satisfy. It won't produce what we hope it to, and it will fail. Jesus says, so that when it fails, he does not say, so if it fails. You see, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So somehow Pharisees have been neglecting the way of God and they're using money to justify themselves before other men. And we get this idea, don't we? I mean, how easy it is if we're we're blessed with wealth, wealth, we just think it has to be a sign that we have favor. Or so we think, right? Like, surely. Here they've been warping the law to their perceived benefit. And I think this is why verse 18 is included here. Did anybody notice that? That he's going on about money. He says you can't serve God on money. Here's the thing about the law. And then wham, don't be divorced. One verse. Kind of out of the blue. But I think that's included here because it's a key way in which these Pharisees have been warping the law. And he says that while the kingdom is now preached, the law does not pass away. And then everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Period. And he goes back into this conversation about money. He goes to uh, another story. So he's highlighting the ways that these Pharisees ignore God's ways. And he's saying it doesn't actually change the law. He's also highlighting clearly the relationship of exclusivity because it illustrates how we are to give our hearts to God. Then he tells this parable of a rich man in Lazarus. A poor man. The preceding parable that we started with is the parable of the dishonest manager, and it addresses the proper use of money. This parable confronts the abuse of money, especially by the rich, and it's a solemn warning here that we are to pay attention to. So I love the descriptions. A rich man, we don't know his name, and there's a clue in that. He's clothed in purple and fine linen. And it's actually kind of funny because the outer garment, so the fine linen is like his underwear. So he's got like special magic underwear. But just by looking at this guy, you could see he's rich. 
Right? The, the color purple is rare. It's a very expensive dye. And here he's wearing robes that just flow with it. And he feasted sumptuously every day. I love that description. I long for that. And I'm waiting for the marriage supper of the lamb for my sumptuous feasting every day. But he's rich. He's well fed. He has what he has. And he has a home that has gates around it. The poor man, who's given a name here, Lazarus, laid at the rich man's gate and he was covered in sores. You kind of picture him. Homeless guy at the gate, and he says he desired to be fed with that which fell from the rich man's table. So Jesus is rolling right from the instruction how to approach money, right? He's saying, go and make friends with what you have to secure eternal dwellings. And here we have a rich man that seems to be trusting in his wealth, living for it as his master, so much so that he keeps it all to himself. Where Jesus says to use righteous to win eternal friends, purple boy refuses to feed Lazarus. He refuses to care for him at all. And the description from Jesus is crazy because he says, moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sword. So the dogs who got the scraps from the table of the rich man come out to be kind and lick the sores, maybe provide relief to the man. Or certainly share the shame of being approached by a dog in this day. And then they both die. One fat, rich, happy, the other in agony, and they die. And in that moment, Jesus says that Lazarus is carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom, to his side. The rich man, though, was buried. And he finds himself in Hades, a place of torment and fire. Now, while this is not a full treatment of what is to come, Jesus is using here the reality of hell, the future of judgment before God, and the danger of an eternity of separation and torment to, to warn those that are listening to this story. And it's a place where even the slightest relief is out of reach. Even a drop of water that would cool his tongue is not provided. And it's a reality for humanity. And even in Ecclesiastes, it says, all this stuff is waste and vapor, says the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. But here in our story, presuming upon his status, he cries out for mercy, this rich guy does. He's a biblical Karen in this moment. He's like, Abraham, don't you know who I am? Like, do, you, do you think if you saw Abraham, like Abraham, right? Father Abraham has many sons. Do you, are you going to call out to him? Or is there going to be a, 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 not necessarily that he's earned a, a reverence, but you're going to give it to him, Right? Is his faith was counted as righteousness for him? Like, this is an important dude, and he's just calling, hey, give me a drop of water. Serve me, Abraham. Or better yet, have the poor guy serve me. But the chasm has been fixed. And how many times has this story been repeated in reality? 
Because neither of these characters is in their place because of their behavior. But their behavior indicated who was the master of their hearts. This is not a story proving that the rich are punished and the poor are given bliss because of their economic situation. But those things were indicators of who had their hearts. And Abraham tells us Moses and the prophets were enough to establish and maintain faith in Yahweh to walk in God's way. And what was God's way? To love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. But the rich man in this story refuses. Just by that, the person that's at his gate, he's refused to love him as himself and it's too late. He's a lover of money, and money could not save him. Lazarus, on the other hand, his name is the clue. His name actually means God has helped. When no one else has helped, when no one else has clothed or cared for or given me salve for my sores, when no one else has fed, God has helped. The master of your heart won't share. The master of your eternity won't share his place of priority, his place of trust, his place of love. So we are to be leery of money. Because it has these tendrils that attach themselves to us. It won't keep us eternally. It will fail. It is an unfaithful lover. But being smart and being leery is not enough, friends. We need to be convinced. And the rich man's last request is to send Lazarus. He still wants people to work for him. It's hilarious to me. Like I've met this, I've probably been this guy. I've met this guy, right? He says, "Just send the poor boy to my father's house to warn his my brothers." And this is Abraham's reply. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. You guys have read to the end, right? Like, you you know what he's pointing to. It turns out money isn't really the point of the chapter after all. Pastor, you didn't have to really preach on money. But it's true that money steals your heart away from the real worthwhile master and Israel is supposed to know this Deuteronomy 10 says and now Israel what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear Yahweh your God to walk in all his ways to love him to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul the one to put above all other things the capital of priority in your life to be his, to find him, to be found in him. Jeremiah 29, 13 says, You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. When I am the master of your heart. And the refusal to repent and the corresponding refusal to believe the gospel is not primarily due to a lack of evidence, but to a hardened heart. And mammon hardens us against God. That's why it's, Dangerous, And we see from Jesus here in this story, Moses and the prophets are enough. The word is enough to prove it, to be convinced that mammon isn't enough. 
To prove that God actually wants our hearts. It's enough to hear of his heart for us. His willingness to send his son to save us. To draw us to himself. His exclusivity inviting our exclusivity to him. Tom Schreiner again says, People might presume if an angel appeared to me, I would believe. Or if I saw a clear sign from heaven, I would believe. Or if I looked up in the sky and saw the words written, Jesus is Lord, I would believe. But Jesus teaches us a fundamental truth. People who say they would believe if they saw indisputable or spectacular proof are fooling themselves. All people need to believe is found in the scriptures. They are sufficient. And the coming of the kingdom means that here in this story, it's an hour of decision. Entrance into the kingdom is not automatic. Everyone must choose whether he is or she will follow Jesus. Which means that all of us have to make a radical decision for the kingdom. That's the the language of everyone forces his way into the kingdom here. We force our way then, friends, when we realize his heart toward us. That's what also then gives us hope. Like we, we, like the Pharisees, are lovers of money. But the, that master's grip is loosened and it slips the more we know Christ's heart for us. This week I saw a message from John Mark Pantana. He's a worship leader. I don't even know much, but I like what he had to say. He said, I always say this, the heart follows what the mind is fixed on. That means your emotions will always match the health potential of your thought life. Emotions are good followers, but terrible leaders. Emotions are just amoral signs that point to your inside world. Jesus' love affair with his bride has involved an epidemic amount of emotional infidelity. And it's never on his part. It's wonderful to think that Jesus doesn't emotionally cheat on us. He's resolved to love us in an ironclad devotion, and his passion and emotion has never deflated. He loves us, and he likes us. Jesus doesn't cope in an unhealthy way at our rejection of him. He doesn't emotionally distance himself when we are being an absolute pill. Jesus doesn't close off his heart to us at the fear of any what if. Jesus stands fixed, secure, and steady, even when your heart wanders to other lovers, whether by good intentions mixed with poor boundaries or an outright willful goodbye. To love deeply and faithfully is to chance both the great pain of unrequited love and the great joy of union bliss. And I think Jesus is lovesick for our hearts, full affection. What good news is it that he stands fixed? He continues to love us. And the gospel calls us to this inner person response of consciously adopting God's values, the kingdom values, and turning away from what is perceived as significant in the sinful human society we exist in. And that's possible only as we ponder the great love with which we are loved by God in the gospel of grace. That it's a love that sacrifices himself for us to become the master of our hearts, to become the friend that invites us into eternal dwellings, that blesses us, that we would go forth and see his kingdom advanced. So it's an invitation to be convinced 
That like Lazarus, God is our help. Jesus justifies you by his sacrifice on the cross. He gives you new life in his resurrection, that which drives in new affections in you, new values, new hopes. And he has secured an eternal dwelling with himself for you. Woo! The mastery of your heart won't share. If I was going to say it as I talk, the mastery of your heart ain't sharing. But this one, Yahweh, is worth loving. So friends, be smart. Everything you have has been given to you. Use it wisely to advance his kingdom. Eat your three squares a day and then feed some hungry people. Be leery. Careful when we long for more of what desires to be the master of our heart and is not Yahweh. And be convinced. See the truth of the finished work of Jesus in Scripture. Hear of it in community. Invest all of you you are in it because he's given himself for you. This is the wealth we need. His kingdom, his way, his life. You are meant to be exclusively his cash in. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. When we come to you, we are more like the rich man in our fine purple clothing. The evidence of our sumptuous feasting before us. Sometimes, Lord, we don't recognize the ways in which you've gifted us. But we ask Holy Spirit, that you'd help us to be smart in our mammon, our money and possessions, that we would use it for the glory of Christ in the advance of his kingdom. That we'd hold it looser than we used to. We'd be generous believers that point people to Jesus with all of who we are, all that we have. Lord, we repent of the ways we've allowed mammon to be our master. The ways we've allowed the world's definition of success to define us. And we ask for a renewed vision of your grace for us, your heart toward us. That you alone would be our master. For your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.